0: Uh, It's so good to be with you guys. Um, I'm John Nemers. I'm the resident uh, here for the Engaged Network, and that really doesn't mean much other than you can just pray for me. Uh, We are over at Ballard Creek in Huxley, Iowa. Just planted a new church. Super excited about that. God's doing great things. They're doing their first communion today, uh, which is awesome. Uh, I get to miss that for you guys, but I'm glad to be here because I love you guys, and you guys are awesome. So if you have a Bible... You can open it up to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to be in three verses, uh, verses 23 through 25. Uh, I was, some of you may know, got married at a young age, married at 20 to my beautiful wife Kaylee, and we had a, our first child at the age of 20 as well. So very young, uh, very immature, very poor, didn't have a lot of money. So I was working and she was at home with our son. And so I I went home one day uh, after a long day of work and um, Kaylee asked me to do something. I don't even remember what it was. Pick up the shoes, you know, take out the trash, something along those lines. And uh, I decided to ask her the forbidden question. I asked her, I looked at her, and then I kind of looked around the room, and I said, well, what have you been doing all day? <laughs> Any of you men who have had a wife at home with kids who have ever asked that question, you know how that conversation went. It was not a wise question to ask. In my mind, it was like, well, I mean, I, don't, I didn't see her, so they just must be hanging out, right? Having fun, watching movies, doing something, eating snacks or something like that. And if we're being honest, that is, at times, how we see or answer the question or maybe ask the question, what is Jesus doing in heaven? All right? We we just got through the whole life of Jesus. And last week, we, we got to the ascension. And now Jesus is in heaven. And so, Sometimes, if we're being honest, we ask ourselves, what, what is Jesus actually doing up there? Well, in this message, my, my prayer and my hope is that, like you being left alone, maybe for the first time with kids for just one day, will make you very much aware and thankful for how much your, your wife, your mom, your whoever it is, does for you behind the scenes with all of these kids, my prayer is that our text, Hebrews 7 Uh, verses 23 through 23, will make us aware and thankful for the work that Jesus is doing for us in heaven, okay? So let's look at these verses right here. I like to say, and I think I say it because I mean it, um, I'm going to say a lot of things, but honestly, what I say does not really matter that much. What I say, it has no ability to just change you within myself, okay? God's word is what changes you. Okay, God's word is really what impacts people's lives, causes their eyes to open up and to save them. So look at the words, look at, look at these verses in Hebrews 7, uh, 23 through 25, and let me just read them for you. "'The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever.' Consequently, or therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, so much of me wants to just jump right to verse 25 and to just, just Stay there because it's so amazing. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for you. That's an amazing verse, and I do want to dig into it, but in order to appreciate the intercession of Jesus, his work as our intercessor, then we have to understand Jesus' work as our high priest, okay? And so that's what the first two verses are talking about. So we need, first, before we get to verse 25, which is amazing, we need to see what verse 23 and 24 are all about. And they are amazing in their own right. Let's read them again here. Verse 23, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus... Holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, in the original, uh, the original reader of this letter to the Hebrews uh, would have known what a priest was, right? The book is called Hebrews, it's written to Hebrews, uh, so they know what a priest is. They would have had a picture in their mind, they would have been very aware. Today, not so much, right? So we have a caricature of what Old Testament priests did and what they looked like, or we have a modern-day version of what a priest is, which isn't really all that comparable at all. Um, So we may find ourselves asking the question, well, why would we even need a priest, right? Why would God give us a priest? Um, Let me try to illustrate it like this. Uh, When I was 16, I was arrested, okay? Okay. And I I got locked up in juvenile detention center. I was there for a couple of weeks. And when I was there at a court date, so they got the paddy wagon. They picked me up. I'm in full jumpsuit, chains and everything. And so they take me to the courtroom. And I, in the courtroom, I had no legal access to the judge. Okay, legally, I could not appear before the judge. But my lawyer could. So, so what my lawyer did was she would talk to me, the criminal, and then go over to the judge, wherever the judge is in the judge's chambers or whatnot, and by doing so, she made access to the judge. You following that? And so our sin, our sin legally separates us from the presence of God, okay, because God is holy. God is God is high, he is perfect, and we are not. Even if we've just sinned one time, which we've all sinned more than once, we are criminals in this case, and we have no access to God. And so God, in his mercy, he he gave us a high priest. He he set up a high priest, And, and it is a mercy, okay? He very well could have just said, Look, you guys have sinned, I'm going to wipe you out right here. But he didn't. He gave us access to him, and that was the role of the priest. And so in the Old Testament, what this looked like is the priests would, um, they would make an atoning sin sacrifice with a blood sacrifice. They'd kill an animal. Um, because as we know, Romans 6:23, the punishment. For sin is always death. The result and the punishment of sin is death. And so something innocent had to die to cover up the sins. Uh, And so they would kill a spotless lamb, a goat, uh, a bull. And so once a year, these priests, these high priests, on the Day of Atonement, they would actually enter into the very presence of God. A place called the most holy place or or, or the holy of holies. I mean, just think about that. That's pretty amazing. If God exists, then being in his presence would be coveted. And yet, here are these guys who God is allowed to actually enter into the presence of God. It's pretty amazing to me. And so what they would do is they would take the blood from the goat that they killed outside of the Holy of Holies, they'd put it in a bowl or something like that, and then they'd start to go into the Holy of Holies and then start to sprinkle it all over the mercy seat, all over the Holy of Holies, and by doing so, they were interceding for the sins of the Israelites, okay? And so this is how it looks straight out of Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16:15 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. That's the Holy of Holies right there and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bulls, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all of their sins. Now, modern-day people, this is nuts to us, right? I mean, this is crazy. Why are we killing animals and sprinkling their blood everywhere? But keep in mind... Not just the sacrifice, but the sacrifice and the priest were both symbols of something greater to come. And and, and most of the Israelites would have known this. They would have known that these were symbols representing something greater. And Isaiah 53 actually tells us or predicts and shows us who these or how these greater high priests or what this greater high priest and this greater sacrifice would actually be doing. Look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. He says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. There's your greater sacrifice. He's not talking about an animal right there. He says, he bore the sins of many that's the greater sacrifice. But then Isaiah continues and he says and make and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's your high priest. So even before Jesus ever stepped foot onto the scene, Isaiah hundreds of years prior was saying these are symbols. They're representing there will be a sacrifice, and it will be a greater sacrifice. There will be a priest, and it will be a greater priest, because a greater priest was needed. Because as the text suggests, all of these priests, they couldn't, they couldn't cut it, right? They, they themselves were sinful, and because of their sin, they died, because that's the result of sin. And, and so we needed a greater high priest. Take the first high priest, for instance. It's Aaron. Aaron, I mean, it's a litany of bad high priests, throughout history, but the very first one sacrificed, uh, made an idol at the foot of Mount Sinai when the presence of God was right in front of him, and he had everybody worshiping this idol and ended up killing 3,000 people because of what he's doing. These are the priests that were there. We needed a greater one. All of these people, all of the priests, all of the sacrifice were pointing towards a great high priest and a great sacrifice. And obviously, where we're going with this is that that is Jesus. And if you're still in Hebrews 7, just look at verse 26. This is how the high priest and the sacrifice ought to have looked. Verse 26 says, this great high priest was holy, innocent, innocent unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That's who Jesus is. Like a priest, Jesus would also make a sacrifice. But it wasn't animals. Elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 it says the blood of bulls and goats they can't take away sins. So so it wasn't an animal. He sacrificed himself on the cross proving that he not only was the sacrifice, but also the great priest. And so also, like the priest, what we learned last week is that Jesus went into the holy of holies, just like the priest would. David predicted this in Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. David says, Who shall ascend to the hill, or who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's what Pastor Jason taught us last week. When Jesus ascended back up into heaven, he was moving into the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God, where he's able to sit down at the right hand of God. And then, where we're going for the rest of this message is like a priest, Jesus sprinkles his blood in his intercessory work for our sins every time he intercedes for us. And so, That's the glorious truth of verse 25. So look at verse 25, and let's read that one. Consequently, the writer says, therefore, because Jesus is our greater high priest, our greater sacrifice, because of this, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so for the rest of our time, I just want to give you four implications of Jesus' intercession uh, for you this morning. There's so much that we could really get into, and like the hardest part about preaching is figuring out what not to say. right? So as I'm digging into this, I'm like, there's so much I could say. But let me give you at least four, and the first one is this. The first implication of Jesus' intercession is that it guarantees salvation for the believers. So I had a, uh, a friend that I used to witness to, and he was a nice guy, but he never really cared that much. And he always kind of poked fun at me. And he goes, you know, you Christians, you always talk about how you want to go to heaven, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to go to heaven. And he's like, well, it reminds me of the story of the pastor who got up there one Sunday morning, and he's saying, who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. And everyone's raising their hand. Yeah, I want to go to heaven. And then he pulls out a gun, and he says, who wants to go first? And all their hands started to go down at that point. And he looked at me, my friend did, and he said, see, I, that's what I don't buy. I don't think you Christians actually know for sure where you're going when you die. Death is inevitable for every single one of us in here. Death is scary. And we are reminded of death all the time. Just last week with the Texas shootings, we're reminded death is inevitable and scary. And what verse 25 is telling us, the glorious truth of what verse 25 is telling us is that you can actually have with 100% certainty a salvation that guarantees that you'll be in heaven someday. It guarantees it. The word used here, to save to the uttermost, could be translated two different ways. It could be translated to save completely, that is, in every domain, or to save always, that is, forever. And if you're a Christian here this morning, both are true. Both are gloriously true for you. Jesus's death on the cross completely wiped out, completely atoned for your sin. When, when Jesus on the cross and he screamed out right before he died, it is finished, it was. Okay, it wasn't almost finished, it wasn't a 50-50% work where God, Jesus has to go intercede and then go atone. and It wasn't a 99.99% finished on the cross and then he's got to go do something else in heaven to kind of make up for the rest of what was lacking. His finished work was finished on the cross. Completely atoned for. Completely wiped out. But Jesus' intercession is the application of that atonement. Okay, so this is just kind of how I was trying to wrap my brain around this. This is deep theological stuff here. Um, It would be almost like you were given a debit card with an infinite amount of money on it. Every time you use that card, you're drawing from a payment that already exists. And the same is true for Christians. Every time you sin as a Christian and you need forgiveness, Jesus intercedes for you by using the already purchased blood to pay for it. And this is mind-blowing to me. This is just absolutely shocking to me because the idea, and what, what is most shocking about this is not the fact that it's shocking enough that our sins are forgiven, right? But The idea here is not that it's a blanket statement, right? Like Jesus goes to the Father and says, hey, I got this guy, John Nemers, he's really sinful, okay? He's going to sin all the time. So let me just get it out of the way now, forgive his sins, and then I'll move on to the next person. The idea here is that every single sin is taken to the Father. Every single thought, sinful thought you have is taken to the Father. Every single sinful act you do is taken to the Father. Every single thing you ought to have done that you didn't do, which is sin, is taken to the Father. You just start to calculate that in your mind and you're going, what in the world? Jesus does that for me? Every single sin, if you're a Christian, he takes it to the Father. That is amazing. Because... I'm going to guess that there are a lot of you in here who are just racked with guilt for your own sin as a Christian. And you may, if you're a Christian, you may start to believe the lie that says, I am too wicked to just continue on in this thing. Too wicked to be forgiven. Listen to me. If that's you and you have those thoughts, listen to me. If you have been truly saved, if you have been born again, then your sin is no match for the power of the cross. It is no match for what Jesus was doing on the cross. He completely, utterly forgave you of your sins, atoned for them, washed them away, and your salvation, if you've believed, if you have truly placed your trust in them, it is Guaranteed. I love what Gavin Ortland said about this. He said, Christ has a greater commitment to our salvation than we do. That's true. Your salvation, if you've believed, is guaranteed because Jesus intercedes for you. The second implication is this. Jesus' intercession comforts the believer. So being saved to the uttermost means to save completely. And it also means to, to save forever, okay, forever. Um, so if the salvation to be saved completely demonstrates or puts on display the cross's power, then being saved forever puts on display the cross's endurance. So I like to go to the gym, I like to lift You throw me dumbbells and and squat rack, I'm all over it. I like that stuff. But if you ask me to run anything over one mile, I'm out. Okay? I got no endurance. I can't do it. I have power, but no endurance. Some of you have endurance, but no power. And there's some of you that don't have anything. (laughs) Just being honest here, right? Um, That's not true with Jesus' intercession. Think about this. Jesus' intercession is, Jesus is not just powerful enough so that he can continue to intercede for us. He doesn't have just the power to intercede for us. He never gets tired of interceding for your sin. Think about that. He not only has the power to intercede for every single one of your sins and to wash them clean, but he never gets tired of doing it. This is so comforting to me, the idea that God, Jesus, never gets tired, sin after sin after sin. I know myself. I'm going to get tired of this, not Jesus. And the reason he's able to do this is because he is a high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses. This is what Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. If you've ever lost anyone through death, then you know that the most comforting people to you are the ones who have been through the same thing. Right, And what that verse is saying, what those verses are saying is that Jesus, your great high priest, has experienced what you've experienced. He's been tempted in the same way that you've been tempted, without sin, of course, but the temptation, the the struggles, the pain, he has experienced this. And because of this, he can intercede for our sins with a sympathetic heart that says, I understand. I mean, think about that, guys. How comforting it, how comforting is it to know that when you are in the battle of your life for sin, you have a Savior that is able to actually look at you in the eyes and say, I understand the temptation. Now keep going. When you are in the battle of your life because you are in so much pain and agony with a, with a broken relationship or whatever it is, you have a Savior who is able to look at you in the eyes and say, I understand. Now keep going. He never gets tired of bringing your weaknesses, your sins to the Father. He never gets tired of bringing your frailties to the throne of God. I can't remember who said it, but someone said, um, Jesus is not impatient with our sanctification. I love that thought. Jesus is not impatient with our sanctification. Now, don't twist that and say, well, that means I can just do whatever I want now. I can just go ahead and sin. That's not what that means. Just because Jesus is sympathetic um, Towards your temptations does not mean he excuses your sins. And that's actually going right into our next implication, which is that Jesus' intercession helps kill sin in the believer. First Peter 2:24 says, "He that is Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. This is a famous verse, but do you see what Peter's saying here? Look at it again. Peter, the Jesus' blood, that if you're a Christian, is currently being pled on, on your behalf in heaven. That blood did not just purchase your justification and your glorification, right? Your, your justification, your stamp of approval in the eyes of God and your glorification, your future, your future perfection for all of eternity in heaven. But his blood, that same blood, purchased your sanctification. Your sanctification, the idea of you every single day being made more like Jesus, being shaped into the image of Jesus. Notice what Peter's saying here. He says, he, Jesus, took our sin that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Live to righteousness. Not just in heaven. That's true. You will be completely dead to sin in heaven. No sin anywhere. And you will be completely clothed and wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. But Peter is saying, it's right here. I've saved you. You have been saved by the blood of Jesus' cross so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. John Piper says the only sin that can be successfully killed in the Christian life is forgiven sin. And guys, this reality, the reality that your sin is forgiven and you now have the ability to go live a righteous life, live a life that goes out and kills sin, this should cause us to be ferocious about killing sin in our life. About putting sin to death in our life. It was Jonathan Edwards who said, I, I, I strive every single day to be the most godly man on the face of the earth. Now, at first, you're like, man, that's kind of cocky, right? Like, what do you mean you want to be the most godly guy on the face of the earth? But you just think about that for a second and you're going, yeah, wait a minute, because that means I would be humble. I, I want to be the most godly person on the face of the earth. I, isn't that our desire? Shouldn't we all be striving to to kill sin and striving to to be godly? Listen, killing your sin takes zero talent, but it does take a commitment to being godly. Killing your sin takes zero talent, but it takes a commitment to godliness. Godliness. Christian, your your sanctification has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And with this in mind, Jesus prayed and interceded for you in his high priestly prayer in John 17 by praying for your sanctification. He says, Father, I pray that you would sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your sanctification has been bought by the blood of Jesus. And so let me go to the last implication of Jesus' intercession, which is it gives courage to the believers. I just mentioned Jesus' high priestly prayer, famously known in, in John 17. He prays this right before he goes to the cross, right before he dies. And along with what I just said, he says this in verses 14 through 15. He says, I have given them your word... And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But watch this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Notice Jesus did not choose to take his disciples out of the suffering they would experience because of the hatred of the world. Did you see that? I don't pray that you take them out of the world, just that you'd protect them from the evil one. Keep them in the world, protect them from the evil one. And so here's my last point that I want to make. That Jesus' intercession not only gives you comfort, but it also gives you courage to face a world that hates you. And what you face that world with is the gospel. That is why we're here. I mean, think about this. Jesus, right now, is praying for your soul. Jesus prayed for Peter. He said, Peter, the devil wants to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's the prayer that the Savior prays for you. He prays that the evil one would not make shipwreck of your own soul and your own life, and at the same time, you go fight the evil one. That's the mission of a Christian. It's to go, be courageous, take the gospel with you, and go do great things with the gospel because your Savior is pleading for you to give you courage. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, if we could hear Christ praying for us right next door, we wouldn't fear anything. But yet the distance makes no difference, and he is still praying for you. Our first core value here at Saylorville is Jesus rescued me from eternal death, so I will live my life on earth for him. Christian, is that true of you? Jesus sacrificed his life for you. Will you sacrifice your life as a living sacrifice for him? This is what the end of the book of Hebrews says. It sums up the whole book like this in Hebrews 13, 12 through 14. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Suffer, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Christian, is that true of you? Do you think like this? How you can go into hard places and suffer for the sake of Christ? Your Savior is praying for you. And hopefully, through these verses, you're realizing that He's doing a lot more than just hanging out in heaven. He is hard at work for your soul. But as I end, I want to draw your attention to my points, which all of them said, And they're all addressed to the believer. Because everything that I just walked through is really, really comforting and good news for the believer. For those of you who have actually looked at the finished atoning work, sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and, 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 and acknowledged it, placed your faith and trust in it, because some of you have not done that. And I just want to draw your attention back to verse 25. Jesus is able to save your soul to the uttermost, completely and forever if you would draw near to the Father through the Son. Would you do that? If you have not placed your trust and your faith in Jesus, recognizing your own sin that put him on the cross, would you right now Place your trust in the Savior who loves you. And for the Christian, let me leave you with the words of Charles Wesley. He wrote a poem that was just beautifully encapsulates the intercession of Christ. This is what Wesley says. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive him. They cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. Let's pray. Father, you are a great and mighty king. You had a plan since before the foundations of the world to make a way for sinful humans to come to know you. We don't deserve it. We shouldn't expect it. But yet, because you are in your own nature a loving God and a merciful God, you gave us a priest. A priest that made access to a holy God possible for sinners like me. And Lord, I pray if there is a single soul in this room who has not had their eyes open to who that great high priest is and who that great sacrifice is, Lord, would you do that right now? Open their eyes, put verse 25 tattooed in their mind, you are able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would edify the saints in this room, that they would be encouraged and comforted by who you are. Lord, we love you. In your son's name, amen.